0: Not very long ago, George Brajak, a scholar, a missiologist, uh, published a, an interesting paper called The Changing Face of Christianity. He says the world's largest religion, speaking of Christianity, is on the verge of a major transformation as the center influence of international Christianity moves from the northern to the southern hemisphere. He goes on to, to quote, uh, various studies, and and in these studies, it is suggested by the year twenty twenty five that over fifty percent of global Christianity will reside in Africa, and Latin America, and in another seventeen percent will be in Asia. With respect to Africa, especially Christianity has been exploding in Africa. In nineteen ten, to give you a sense of this, in nineteen ten, only one percent of the world's Christians lived in sub-Saharan Africa. In 2010, the percentage jumped to 30%. That's incredible. Anecdotally, Lisa and I, as many of you know, spent two weeks in Africa this past couple of weeks, mostly in Zambia. And it was astonishing, the familiarity, if you will, of Christendom uh, in Zambia. You know what I mean by that, don't you? I don't mean Christianity per se, though it's obviously Christian, but I mean a Christianity that now enjoys a kind of cultural authority, a kind of cultural presence and power that uh, is, the, is a dominant power both in its culture and fads even, its mores, but also engaged directly with politics. It's fascinating. It's fascinating all over the place, on bumpers, on houses, on everything, or Christian symbols. And yet, just peering just ever so slightly through the veneer, we began to see that it's also infused with ancient tribal mores, particularly the tribalism, where people, something like today, saying, you, oh, I'm from Georgia, though I'm an American. You're from a tribe, though you're a Zambian. And there's a sense in which these tribal cultural aspects are synthesized into their Christianity in ways that were incredibly reminiscent for me as a young man growing up in the Deep South. I mean, I felt I was back in my Southern home, albeit trans, you know, albeit Southernism infused in Christianity and various Western values that are associated with that, over against Africanism, if you will, or tribalism infused with Christianity, albeit some of the more African uh, sort of synthesis of culture. Now, this this is I'm watching this more as a obviously as a theologian, pastor, and and and, and, and giving you how I saw it, and it was fascinating to me, and and so there was a, a, almost immediately a sense that. That I had an errand from God uh, that was put upon me even uh, early on. Somewhat unsurprisingly, you know, we're celebrating the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation, and one of my major activities was to be—I was teaching in a university there, 75 students, and one of the tasks was uh, they asked me, you know, since you're here, you're qualified. They saw what I'd been doing, and would you would you give a convocational lecture to the to this you know to this country, basically. They invited dignitaries and bishops and all these folks to this big thing. And and so I quickly put together a kind of of, of a lecture. The Lord was amazing. I, it was just the Spirit of God was, I, I don't think I've ever experienced the power of God in, in ways that I did there, just in the quickness and ease of mind to put together things like that pretty quickly. And, um, and, and I delivered that lecture, but it was it was a theme, something on this aspect of of what is happening here in Africa that happened 200 years ago in America. Um, And what are the lessons that could be learned from America, not because America learned them, but because we didn't learn them. Because we know that part of the statistic that I just explained to you is not just the, the number of followers, per se, in developing nations that will transform Christendom. It's not just a numbers game. Much more significant behind these statistics was the fact that, that what we're talking about in, in, over the, in, in about the last 100 years especially is the demise of Christianity, and I mean by that not the numerical growth, but the, the content and the substance of Christianity. I mean, one only has to read what some of you have as a staple of reading if you've taken theology here, but you just have to read what was popular press sermons, Whitfield's and and Edwards, and these were popularizers, if you will. Sermons that could hardly be digested even in a congregation like this because of its content, because of its orthodoxy. There's been, by all measures, a secularization of Christianity in the Western hemispheres. And that's the cause. But more than secularization, there's been a synthesization of culture and politics with Christianity. And, and we see the very early beginnings of that happening in Africa. Again, in God's providence, uh, I was asked to meet with a group of scholars who were drafting a, a document and help them draft a document to their government. And in God's providence, as some of you know, this is something I've published in and got my uh, doctoral studies in and and so it was really incredible how God had chosen for me to be there at this moment when, when they were about to go down this line. And I said, you know, we need to look at the Barman Declaration. Some of you know Nazi Germany and the Barman Declaration of the Confessing Church. And I would recommend that you take that and, and, and utilize that in the process because it's going to very carefully distinguish between when and when the church, when it can and when it can't, speak and engage in the political uh, authority. And the way in which that confessing church in Nazi Germany had such great power precisely because it was careful not to entangle itself. You know, when the carrot, the great carrot of cultural hegemony is, is waved in front of a church always so often, and you could almost define there's a whole history of Christendom if you wanted to do this, and they've been written. But you could suggest that the demise of Christianity, the rise and the fall of Christianity is to the degree that it takes that carrot or not. You know what I'm talking about? When the carrot is of authority and power and cultural influence is given to the church and the church somewhat blindly and naively takes that carrot. And when they take the carrot, we find that, that as much as it might influence cultural fads, Christianity is being influenced by those fads. As as much as it might influence cultural mores and and patterns and mannerisms, Christianity and its very fundamental core ideas begin to be also infected on the other end. Well, I'm I'm giving you this pretty robust introduction because because in the next two sermons, it's my idea that I would try to, to take something of what has been really just just moving in my head for the last two weeks, even before, and say, let me try to put that in a manner that, that we as a congregation could could take home with us. Because see, the lesson that we we could learn from our own history is not a lesson that we can't learn still. Even as to help us learn that we engage a culture in a different place, if you will, historically but brothers and sisters, all the same. And so there's really two themes that came out of this trip as I was sleepless on, you know, uh, red-eye flights for now last two days. Um, I sat there and began to just ruminate and think about, what, what would I write? What would I do? What would I do with all this? And two major themes came out. And the first theme is the one I want to articulate today. And the next theme will be next week. The first theme is this, this incredible sense of solidarity, of welcoming presence of Christ that, that transcends cultures that I know we experienced. And this is, a, you could say, a little bit more, not so much of a warning sermon, but this is the more just wow sermon. Just wow, the gospel really is that powerful. And to help us do that today, and then the second one's going to be more on the warning side, and we're going to look at some things that, that really came out in the lecture I gave to the uh, university uh, that, that le- or two weeks ago. But the first one's more the lessons I learned from, from just experiencing the life of Christ in the church of Zambia. And so to help us do that, I want to I do something I rarely do, but I want to give you a few pictorial illustrations. I want you to see some faces. So if I could, we're going to put some faces up here. It's a little bit light, but, uh, but th- this is the church uh, that we are participating in planting. It's in its very early stage of a, of a mission church status. It's in the Dola. Um, this picture isn't that good. I apologize, but, but that's the, the uh, and if you can go to the next one, and they were very excited because, you know, as an early church, you, you want to present yourself. And so they're, they're meeting in what's called the Jubilee Center, which is a ministry that the Tenth Ways are involved with, that we're indirectly involved with, you could say. An incredible, incredible ministry, the Jubilee Center. Mercy and, and, and creating pastoral networks that, I, that Lisa and I were able to participate in. And, and you'll hear more about that during Sunday school I do hope you'll come to Sunday school. I'm going to show you a couple of videos and some singing, and it's really going to be a lot of fun. But uh, but they got in their first church sign. So that kind of tells you where they are. And they, that day they were they were looking at their sign. And so I got a picture of them holding up. You can't read it and I can't even remember it. So it's there, but that's the 10th way and their son in the middle. But, but, uh, but you know, as, I, as we were worshiping there, there was, a, there was a message that came out immediately. By the way, I'd when we, uh, we, they lost all of our bag and at us. And so, uh, so I had to preach in clothes that I went to the local market to get. And, and everybody was wowed that I was so in style. Now if you had seen me, uh, I was not in style. But, but uh, I couldn't, and, and my shirt was too small. My pants were too big. My belt hung down like that. Um, and I had a bloody nose because I nicked myself with my razor and the nose never got better the whole sermon. So literally I'm doing this the whole sermon like this. One of the guys came up to me and said, I thought you had a booger. (laughs) I said, well, I'm glad you figured that out. Uh, Because he saw that little white piece of cloth that I had up there trying to get it out. Yeah, it was that kind of a day. The the, the trips were from hell. I'll just tell you that right now. But but, but what was interesting is walking the streets, even that, that Saturday afternoon after we arrived to go get some clothes, how strange I felt. Um, you know uh, many of you uh, deal with this more than others, especially those of other race in america but but you know just the experience of feeling white and I know many of you uh, that are ethnic and or uh, that we 're all ethnic, but but many of you in some context know what i 'm talking about and and it was just strange and of course there 's a cultural sense of strangeness and the way things are done, and we call it African time for a reason and some other things and so Um, So I felt so strange. And then I walked in and I stood before the congregation like I'm standing before you. And these people, the the ones that you've just seen, uh, the thing that just hit me viscerally, viscerally, was just how at home I felt. How something happened when when we started singing our songs together. And I was just at home. I mean, at home in a way that I wouldn't feel at home if I were in Atlanta, Georgia, where I grew up, no doubt. Just a deep sense of, I'm home. Let's go on there's a couple other pictures to see that this is a situation now. Not Ndola is a fairly uh, thriving city that's really on the up and up. Uh, there, the church that we're planning there is going to be reaching a university community, kind of like this. Uh, this is the absolute opposite. It's in Shimbulama and uh, in the Kitwe district, and it's in the bush. And through Jubilee, there's a network of churches. Uh, where I, while Lisa was meeting with Sunday school teachers and, and key leaders over here, and you'll see a video that, that shows you a little bit more what they were doing at Sunday school, I was meeting with uh, 27 pastors uh, for a full-day conference and just walking through uh, the solas of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, etc. I'll, I'll go in that later. And um, it was really a powerful, powerful day. And, uh, and again, in a very different context, very rural, very poor, um, right at home. Keep going. Uh, uh, this, is, this is Lisa with uh, Pastors Wives, I believe, Lisa. Is that right? Yeah, these are some Pastors Wives. You're going to hear more about that. Uh, but d- just sisters, right at home. Next, just pictures. These are Sunday school teachers and uh, leaders that Lisa was also t- training and teaching uh, during the week. Next. This is the, the pastors I was meeting with. Uh, we actually, it's a horrible picture. I had, I didn't do very good at pictures when I was leading the meetings, as you can tell. But um, we actually got in a big circle together. It was a very powerful day. Um, next. Uh, th- this was interesting because we're doing all this while once a year the tribes have a great presence and through a circumcision ceremony. And they get a big flag and they come down the street and they have whips. And they, and they uh, asked for money. They, they're basically trying to round up all those who had not been circumcised. And, and the pastors and I were over there, and, and they explained to me that they don't, of course, affirm. That this is where they, they, they have a lot of old African pagan ritual that comes into the circumcision. And so this becomes a real, almost a battlefront right there in front of the church where they're trying to woo the families in the church to their circumcision, while the church, of course, is wooing them to their, quote, circumcision. And um, it just happened that we were there on that day, a very powerful day. Uh, they dress up with masks, and uh, it's, a, it's a real event. And the whole city comes out, and um, they carry these whips, and they kind of do this whip ceremony that if you haven't been circumcised, if you don't want to be whipped, you can give us some money, and we'll circumcise you. And there's some some indulgences involved with that. So, uh, and, and there's some you know, drugs that are particularly used during the ceremony that, that are not something Christians can affirm, even though they can affirm circumcision in a kind of odd way. So it was very interesting going on. Again, you can see and feel how strange I would have felt there. But yet, in the, I'm giving you this, this contrast, but the moment I'm sitting with the pastors, I'm, I'm thinking, these people, I feel closer to these people than I do at a family reunion, practically. It was that powerful and visceral. Keep going. Um, this, of course, was when we were eating and um, and and just the way that the hospitality, the way they welcomed us. But they didn't welcome us, praise God, by asking, by trying to become American. And that's something I'm going to pull out in a minute, in a sermon. They welcomed us by serving us their food, food that they eat every day, every single day, twice a day. What's it called, Lisa? Shema. Every day. I said, well, How often do y'all eat that? This? this is the meal we eat every day, twice a day. We how many meals do you eat? Two times a day. What do you eat? This is the meal every day. Very, very, with very exceptions. And, and it was just such an amazing privilege. This the guy on the right is the, the, kind of the key leader pastor of the pastors there. Next, um, I'm going to do this real quickly. There's, there it is. Next, where we were. Um, and then, and of course, I got to go down to Livingston and, and preach at a church there. Again, the same experience next. You're going to get a video from them later. Um, this is the students uh, that I taught Got a little clip clipped off there, 75 of them there, uh, and you can see us there. Next, just real quickly, next. I'm going to zip through these. Next, next, next. There you go. We're good. All right. So have a face, because what I want us to do is turn now to this passage that you just heard read. And I want to ask, and just think about the welcome exhortation that we're given in this passage a passage that 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 has a one exhortation one command and it's the command to welcome one another and how those faces portray a place where culturally you would not feel very welcomed you'd feel strange you'd feel awkward you know the the currency the language the natural language though the formal language is english everyone kind of goes back and forth from language to doma and and so there's a sense in which there's an interaction there. And you feel very strange. And you come to a passage like this that's talking about intimacy and welcome and how, how the nations are going to experience this welcome together in the gospel. And it all seems nonsensical until you experience that kind of a moment. And I know many of you have. You know, about this welcome, in America we often think of it as Tolerance. You know, a great uh, quote by George Eliot, the responsibility of tolerance lies with those who have the wider vision. And, of course, he's speaking of tolerance in the best sense that you can speak of it in a civil discourse way. If you think of the common grace that God gives to all people of all nations and none, then that common grace ought to invoke in us a kind of tolerance of one another that's respectful, that's civil, that's that's capable of acknowledging the Imago Dei and all people of all faiths and none. And I, I, this is not a sermon on common grace and that kind of tolerance. I read this only to suggest that, that this is the best of the best. Experiencing the power of the common grace with the wider vision of humanity that George Eliot's talking about. That's the best of the best kind of thing, scenario that we could expect or hope for. But notice the title of the sermon and how it is that, that, that we, we, come at the go- we come at humanity a, a little bit differently in the gospel. Not only do we respect one another as people of all face and none made in the image of God and therefore with these inalienable rights that are given to them and us that we share together and, and experiences, but all of a sudden then we come into a context like a church, and it's real. That Christ's blood is thicker even than your bloodlines. There's something more true, more powerful, that the world yet awaits. A welcome, not just a tolerance, but a welcome that's based on the universality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just the universality of our imago Dei birth. And so what we have here in this exposition is a context in Paul's day where he is taking the promise made to Abraham that we just heard read, and he is expositing that promise into his moment, into his context, where he finds himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews ministering to the Greeks. It was foreign to him. It was was a place where he shared nothing in common, if you will except for a broad sense of the Imago Dei. And yet he's translating this incredible promise to Abraham to an age when there would be a kind of familiar family welcome between people who in, outside of the church are at even odds with each other. The Hebrews and the Greeks, the dogs, as the Hebrews called them. And here it's almost, it's impossible to imagine how how much of a contrast Paul is engaging in cultures when he writes Romans. And this debate that was going on about how do we, as a Christian community, embrace the promise that's given to Abraham that all the lands of the world are going to be inhabited by God and his Messiah church. And so that's the question that drives Romans, out of which we come into contact with these great reformational concepts and truths. But it's all focused on the universality of Christ in the gospel for all people everywhere. And so what I want us to do is look at this passage very briefly and take from it lessons that we can learn about Really, I hope you just walk away with a sense that, wow, the gospel really is that big and that powerful. And the kind of cultural, how does the gospel engage cultures? That's the kind of thing I want us to think about. Let's pray real quick. I forgot to do that. Let's do it before I get into it. So Father, thank you for this day and for the privilege we have. I ask God your presence now, your anointing presence, that your spirit would speak into the souls and lives of your people the way that You know they need to hear it, and I need to hear it. So please come, Lord. Really, please come. Without you, this is nothing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So like I said, our chapter engages some of the tensions of cultures coming together in the church. The Hebrew-Greek culture versus God's law and the promise of the gospel is at stake. Then the question was... How do we do missions to the Greeks? Must Greeks first become Jewish? And where does Jewish stop and Christianity begin? You see the question? In order to become a Christian, now, of course, must an Eastern become a Western? Must an African become an Anglo-Saxon? Must a Southerner become a Northern? Well, you get the gist. In many and various ways, we can very naively impose our own culture's and the way we do the gospel within our cultural context as universal terms for all people. At least in the African church, that is something right now that there is a very visceral reaction against. One of the issues that came up consistently in the university, particularly after the convocation and conversations, is this notion of African theology, And I was rebutting a situation where I said there is no such thing as African theology. There's no such thing as an American theology. There's only Christian theology. To be sure, theology then must be done in an African way or an American way. But in a way that is in the world, yes, culturally, but not of the world, no, not African or American theology. You see the difference. And that was a great conversation that we had two Thursdays ago. And this is exactly the conversation that Paul's having here. And so what are these terms and beliefs that we share as Christians that are non-culturally related, that, that we must distinguish as universal as related to Christ? Well, our text gives us exactly the answer to that question. First of all, you remember that the book of Romans, its its theme throughout is there is therefore no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's the very very core of Romans. And the whole thing is patterned after that, that phrase. Over and over it comes up. Again, there is no such thing as Hebrew theology or Greek theology or a Hebrew gospel and a Greek gospel. All gospel is gospel, it's university. And it's, therefore, the very basis of our unity and the very basis of us welcoming one another at a level that transcends whatever cultures might divide us. So, for instance, in chapter 3, verse 9, there's no distinction. Everyone, everyone has sinned. That was, that was an amazing conversation on a Tuesday two weeks ago in the, in the theology class at the university, talking about uh, does Christianity really, can you, ancient questions that we, st- we talk about here a lot, About this person who hasn't had access to the gospel, are they guilty, and therefore is it fair that God would judge them? Questions like that, but it starts with this kind of a statement. There is no one, Paul argues, that has not had access, enough access, even through general revelation, in order that they might know that there is a God, and the gravitas of that God, such that they would be in a disposition to submit to him as their Lord, and therefore we are all one in our sin. What then? Are we Jews any better off, Paul says, in his context then? No, not at all. For we have already charged at all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All has turned aside. Together they have become worthless, and one does good, not even one. This is the passage that I read in response to a, a question at the end of the class, wrestling with this issue Because someone came to me and said, Preston, you need to understand that in African theology, we believe the problem is a lack of knowledge. And I thought to myself quietly, been there, done that, America. Been there, done that. The Enlightenment. The idea that knowledge and education can save human races. It can't. It's part of it. It's good, don't get me wrong. But there's something deeper and and more profound. And it's supernatural, this gospel. It's a a disposition in our hearts that has to be changed because the problem, according to Romans, was not a lack of knowledge. The problem was that we are all, in Adam, cursed in a disposition that rejects God. It's part of our nature. And that that we therefore need a new nature. For he describes in Ephesians, as you may know, how it is that that all have sinned and, and everyone has trespassed, and now we are dead in our trespasses. And that means we're not alive. Duh. That means we can't choose. Duh. That means we have no a capacity for free will anymore. Duh. And only do we have free will when we are regenerated and given rebirth in the power of the God's gospel of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Will we actually have a real choice again? This is the point of Paul. And then in that choice, we will choose because of our new nature, we will will Jesus Christ. We will will God's kingdom because we have a new nature that wills differently. Everybody, theologians for centuries have tried to grapple with how best to say this. Jonathan Edwards would call this will the, the religious affections. Everyone is, has an a inborn religious affection that is, that is naturally and fully biased in rejecting God. And that religious affection is the problem that then is a priori to the will of humanity and the choices then we make out of those wills. You've got to go that deep. That was a whole half an hour discussion after class with this passage in mind. There's no distinction. The problem ultimately isn't just knowledge. They need to be born again through the preaching of the gospel. And the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit with that preaching. That's chapters 1 through 3.5 of Romans. But there's another no distinction. He returns to the same idea. There's no distinction, therefore, that all must be justified by Christ. That is the universality of Christ and the need for his atonement for our sins. That we can't justify ourselves. Again, Romans 3, but now, and this is the passage that saved Martin Luther, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You see, the law gave us knowledge, knowledge of our sin and knowledge of God's glory, but it couldn't save us apart from what? Well, here he speaks to Christ in the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ versus works. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. There it is again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by the grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. And that leads us to our passage. This conclusion, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all Who would call upon him. Now in chapter 14, Paul discerns then between what is proper for the church to judge as contrary then to Christianity versus things that would be improper to judge as things contrary to Christianity. Here he makes this classic distinction that we must make when we engage different cultures. The distinction between, some have called it elements and forms. The elements of our spirituality, our faith, what we believe, what we confess, versus then the culturally sensitive forms that those elements partake, that, that implement those things. Do we use a pulpit? Do we not? Do we wear these clothes versus those clothes? And in every culture, there's an association that seems to be somewhat um, in, unintentional even between the elements and the forms. So, for instance, in some cultures, as we learn in the Scripture, for a woman to wear uh, no headdress, and we see it even to this day in the Eastern cultures many times, that, 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 is, a, that, is, a, that is a show of insubordination or, or something like that. But that's not true in all cultures. You see? And so, so as Christians who think missionally and particularly gospelly, we have to be careful to go to the Scripture, and only the Scripture, and read it by good and necessary inference from Scripture, and say, now, can I say by good and necessary inference that it's unbiblical to wear a head, uh, or or, biblical or necessarily biblical to wear a hat, or not? Just because it's associated with something in this culture doesn't mean it's necessarily an element of our faith. And those are the kind of issues that were going on all the time with Paul. Things like circumcision. And other things like that. Foods. And what foods you could eat. Foods that were associated with idolatry, but in and of themselves were not idolatrous. And that was chapter 14, dealing with these foods. We have the same sorts of things when we engage cultures. And it's so, such a blessing to look at you and to see many cultures here with many family bloodlines represented right here in this, this little building. And I'm sure that as we engage one another, we've had to learn a little bit about, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's not make this association so quickly between elements and forms. Well, that's what Paul is dealing with here. And when he says, therefore, to welcome one another, what's he saying? He's saying, begin with the supposition that, that there's no distinction between you and this person, that all have sinned. You know, no culture has a, has a corner on skin or not sin. I can't go to any place on this globe, I don't care where they are culturally or whatever, and say, oh, we Americans, you know, we just don't sin quite as much. Now, you know that's obvious. I don't even have to say that to you. But But there's just no, there is no place where we can't say, you know, in humility that we can and humility, identify in solidarity with, the, with someone's struggle with sin. Because we all struggle, don't we? And that's why there should be no judgment zone in a church. I don't walk into a Zambian church and, and feel guilty because I see how sinful America is compared. Or vice versa, I don't walk into an African church and say things which would make them say, oh, we're so sinful and compare. No. We may sin differently and in culturally expressive ways, but but there's no distinction. We're all just the same here. We're all screwed up and, you know, going to hell in a handbasket if it weren't for Christ. And there's something incredibly empowering about that solidarity that gives no one a vantage point of moral superiority. And that's what Paul is saying. Welcome one another. For none of you in this room right here has a corner on truth or sin. There's a sense in which we can express that to people of all faiths and none. And we have a point of contact right there. That like you, I suffer from my sin. And then the second one, of course, being like you, I needed a justifier. Rather than thinking I had to justify myself. To be restored to a God who is holy and doesn't need us, quite frankly. You know, we've got to remember that. This holy, great God, Paul is making the case that... look. He owes us nothing. You know, there are those who would, would want to put God on trial in their minds. I'm going to tell you, if you're doing that, God ain't near. He's not getting near that. We got to come to Him humbly, saying, If you're God, I can't justify myself to you. I'm not justified in asking you of anything. There's a humility that comes from our sin that leads us naturally to this idea that, that we are humble now in our way forward. With God. Am I making sense? It's this sense in which I hear it all the time, if there's a Western sin, maybe particularly Western, it's this post enlightenment idea that, that Descartes and the Cartesian Revolution put into our idea, and I mean I think he actually meant it in good faith, but but this idea that to know anything we must start with what we know best, and that's us. And therefore, for the remaining of the time it's reason seeking faith, not faith seeking reason. That was another big conversation, by the way, because my students there at the university had just gotten really their first contact in earnest with higher criticism. Thankfully, I'd been schooled in that. And it was amazing to take the straw man out of it and to say, well, hold on here. Let's just give him that. Let's just give him that. Let's just give him that. And they were just going, wow. But at the very heart of the conversation was, can we, according to our scripture, approach God? As if we're the arbiter of truth about Him. Can we have that disposition that thinks for a moment that God owes us anything? That He needs us for anything? In other words, you're on the wrong playing field if you're going through this life where you're thinking, I'm going to check God out. You know what? God doesn't need to be checked out. He's just fine. We need to be checked out. And there's an incredible statement here that we are justified by grace through faith. Paul will go on and add to that in Ephesians chapter 2, thus anyone could boast. I came through an era of evidentialist apologetics. Maybe some of you have too. You know, and, and there's this, this incredible narrative that goes something like this. I was an atheist and I went out to pursue God, and I went out to to disprove God, and I, I think there was some goodness in that, and these people are good Christians and and had some influence because I do think there's reasons to believe in God, and we need those reasons. There's nothing wrong with that to be reasonable in our faith. But I think I'm going to say unintentionally some of these reasons, you know, these these you know reasons that demands a verdict, whatever kind of books that that there's a, there's a subtext there that I think gets brought perhaps unintentionally. That's this false notion that, that somehow we become the arbiter, we become the judge, that we get into the position of this narcissistic, existentialistic journal journey where the world revolves around my brain and I'm going to find God and I'm going to make sense of Him and I'm going to justify myself therefore. It's no more true for us as it is for an African. The gospel teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem isn't just knowledge, it's deeper than that. It's your nature is dead. And that God owes us nothing. And that you have not the capacity to justify yourself and what you've done a million times when you reject his lordship, the very one who gave you life itself. You have no capacity to justify yourself to that God. He's holy. He's in need of none. And therefore, we come to him and say, God, have mercy. That's the music that sings into the ears of God. God, have mercy on me. And that's universal. That's the gospel. Look look what he says with this then. Look what he says. Because of those two major things that I've just outlined from, from this book, Paul then goes, says this in chapter 15, what we read, therefore, Given all this argument, therefore Christians welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He goes on to say, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is an appropriate conclusion to the book of Romans. Welcome one another. When you really understand the gospel, you are going to find a, this word welcome, I'm going to have to talk about it here in a minute, because it's a very powerful word. It means to embrace one another. To embrace one another as co-conspirators against God in our sins. To embrace one another as those who are in need of mercy. Revealed through Jesus Christ in the Gospel, embrace one another. what was so beautiful here's a scenario that made me feel embraced so so one of the things i'm going to show you tomorrow, uh, later is, is it was really powerful when I when the first day that I walked into the class there's seventy five students all eager and eager waiting there, and I walk in they, everything they do they make a big deal, you know the chancellor was there to introduce me and all this stuff and and uh, we're so casual here, you know. And it's, it, there was something neat about that—the the, just the, just the, I don't know, the, the respectfulness of order. And uh, so you walk in, and the moment I started walking in, the drums started beating. It was good. And they start singing this song. You'll hear it in a minute. Ah, bye. And I and I said, "What do what you say?" And at the end, what were you singing? Every day, they sung the song before we started. As I walk in. And it was a song to God. It was a prayer of, about the harvest is great. Therefore, send ye out laborers for the harvest. Just a perfect prayer that would begin a discussion uh, that's training the future ministers of, of, of Zambia. And so, it was really pretty cool that they did that. But then, somewhere, and and, and then there's some dancing, of course, and some things that will happen. Um, and there was about midway through the class, we're really connecting together, Love Fest, all of this stuff. They've welcomed me, and, and I'm up there trying to dance. And I knew that I'd finally arrived when, when one of the students came up to me, and he says, Pat, Pat, you've you got to dance like this. And he starts to show me how to do the feet. He says, you're not dancing right. <laughs> and, well, but there's something profound there. And so I do this little thing. You know. They really all loved it. It was great. But the point being is that, that there was something profound that I'm trying, I mean, my head's just spinning here with theology going there. And I'm thinking, you know, the welcome that Paul is envisioning here is not the welcome that says, I'm not going to celebrate each other's culture. I'm going to neuter it. It's not that kind of welcome at all. And it's not the kind of welcome that, that even they try to pretend to be American when I'm there. They welcomed him and me into, I'm the minority, not them. And they said, come, we embrace you in our culture and by our culture with the same gospel. So learn to dance with us. Learn to sing with us. This is something we can get all wrong. We think what it means to be culturally sensitive is to cease being who we are culturally. Quite the contrary. It's to embrace one another's culture, even as we come into each other's presence with that culture. And to the degree that we're multicultural is the degree that our culture will be multicultural, you see. And on it goes. And so there's a sense in which this word welcome, and he and he notice he gives us two reasons for the welcome in our text. The first reason is he basically says, why should we welcome each other? Because Christ became a servant of this welcoming of cultures himself. He says, Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you, becoming your servant. And he talks about to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. The passage is clear. The clause immediately following the command to welcome one another is a comparative clause just as. And we saw that, of course, throughout Christ's ministry. And we see it in his teachings. How it is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's interesting, by the way. He didn't say the righteous, right? See, that's that's back to that Enlightenment thing. The the Enlightenment is a righteousness movement of intellectualism. And here he's saying, I didn't come to save people that think they can save themselves. I came to save anybody who knows they can't. And that's exactly, again, back to the theology of a gospel, that he became a servant, and therefore there are no insiders anymore in the gospel, not culturally. And the nations, they're all nations that belong to God. That's the first reason. The second reason is God's plan from the very beginning and every redemptive historical period anticipated this letter that Paul is writing in Romans. I won't uh, take you through all of it. You know how I love to give you background. but, But it was God's plan all along, which is Paul's point in quoting from the Old Testament throughout the book of Romans. He quotes from 2 Samuel and Deuteronomy 32 and Psalms 117 and Isaiah 11, all to suggest that the prophets looked forward to a day when all the lands of earth would be under this great messianic rule of Jesus Christ. Adam is commanded to be fruitful and multiply, which was to expand the kingdom presence of God to the whole world. The Abrahamic commission, as we heard read in 15, later in 17, again in 18, how Abraham would be part of this great trajectory that's going into the whole world, being fruitful and multiplying, by the way, right there at the great commission of Abraham. When he's given the great commission to go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples of God, you could just as well say that in the way it was said to Abraham in 18. And he says, and he quotes what was given to Adam and Eve when he says, Be fruitful and multiply, and then go make the nations under God. We've, we, we so materialistically read Genesis 1 through 3 as if he's telling us to go out and make a lot of crops. He's talking about go and expand the kingdom, authority, and power, and rule of God. Expand, make fruitful, and multiply the earth by the rule and order of God in this earth on it goes, the mosaic continuity of the city on a hill that would be given to all nations. Prophetic last days when there would be this great, great migration to the Messiah. As we saw in the first century in Pentecost especially. On and on it could go. So what am I trying to say here? I think we have something to learn from our African trip together because you were with me. Everywhere I went, I reminded them that you sent me, and to pray for you, into this church, and the American church, and they did. What are we to learn from this thing? Well, first of all, that we have a gospel that is really for real. You really experience it when you get outside of your comfort zone, to discover that you are family. I was, Lisa and I were, this is the first time we've been to Africa, and we've always wanted to go to Africa, and and we had just a, 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 after the whole thing, we took a day and saw some things there. And, and, um, and I remember we were talking and said, Man, I am so glad this is the way we experienced Africa. Uh, not as a tourist. Because the way I felt even that day as a tourist was strange and foreign. We went to this little uh, African meal that was supposed to be patterned after traditional African, and everything about that meal, it, it, it wasn't authentic. When I compared it to the meals and the fellowship in the community and the way in which Africa was being experienced in the homes of people we were eating with every night the week prior. It was just, it was surreal to me how, how light and how superficial that day was, compared to the days of experiencing the family of God in Africa. My people, my family, my brothers and sisters. It was just powerful. And so I want to tell you, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't know about this gospel, and and all we hear about is how it divides people and all this, that's just bull. The gospel unites. We emphasize not the exclusivity of Christ, I hate that term, and I would never use it. Everywhere in the gospel, it never says exclusivity. It says universality. See, that's another example where we got on the playing field of our critics. Gospel isn't exclusive. It's universal. That's the point of of chapter 15. And it has that impact of unifying and universalizing the human race as we share in these core values that I am a sinner, in need of grace, a grace revealed by one who is a God-man in the flesh for my being, justified, made right with God in a way that God would receive glory for it, not me and my narcissistic pomp of rationality, but as a humble person brought to see that God is God and I'm not. That's universal. That's the gospel. So I hope that my first take-home for you would be to say, If you're here and you're skeptical about Christianity, let me just give you a testimony. It's real. It transcends race, ethnicity, same nationality, you name it. Politics, yep. Even red and blue Christians, believe it or not. It's so much transcendent of that. Those things. I came back to America. I hadn't watched the news for two weeks. And I just thought, God, I can't believe this. There's such bigger issues, Christians, than what we get make religious in our world, in our politics, and our cultural fights. And it's this universality, these two points that we just made. And that's how we relate to the world, the universality of Christ. That's the point one. Christ is universal. Welcome, therefore, one another in Christ. It has the power to do it. Number two is we need to start thinking a little harder about what this really means to be inclusive. You know, it's it's this idea that, that, for one, the gospel is thicker than blood, to be sure, but two, we need to be more welcoming. And what we see is that the Bible shows us how to humbly critique our own cultural biases while becoming a people of God united across a diversity of races, cultures, and classes. While I was there, it was interesting because the effect that it had was not just for me to hopefully be more humble, but, but there was something that stood out to me in a very profound way that I needed to, to hear. Because if there's something that is just intuitive, at least to the people I was associating with in the classroom, in the church, in the, in the core leaders of, the, of this organization, etc., it was this theme of God's sovereignty. I thought I believed in sovereignty. You guys know me, and I've been teaching theology here for 25 years every year of my life, and I'm telling you, I talk a lot about sovereignty. Uh, I couldn't I mean, it, it just comes out of the mouth every single moment of the day. It'll work out. It'll work out. No problem. No problem. Things work out. I must have heard that a hundred million times. The first million... I'm a skeptic. Yeah, yeah, that's, but we we got our part to play. <laughs> but then I kept hearing it. My God is sovereign. My God is sovereign. He, and they would say all the time, God works things out. God works things out. He's quoting scripture, you know. And I just am so thankful that in this works, righteousness, post-enlightenment, workaholism, capitalistic society that I live in, all of which has good things about it, don't get me wrong, work ethic, good, all this stuff. Please, don't go to the either-or stuff. We're over that, right? Don't play the small mind here. But I can, I can, I can learn that I breathe and drink the, the water of a very self-sufficient ethic that really thinks that everything whatsoever happens is my fault. And we bear the guilt of everything's my fault. That's the negative side of this arrogance of a Western culture that really believes in the power of its ingenuity, no less than the Tower of Babel. We're going to build our tower to God whether it's through our institutions, our academies, our our capitalistic ventures. Now, again, this isn't me bashing any of those isms. This is just reminding us of something that I learned, that I engage a culture where it just seemed more natural. And there was, therefore, less stressfulness than the culture that I live in And it always was rooted in this little way of saying it over and over and over again. No problem. God works it all out. No problem. God works it all out. I want to encourage us to humbly listen to that. Somehow their culture has enabled them to believe that doctrine easier than our culture. And they are better for it. And so that's just one of many examples where we can be honest and say, you know, I'm I'm not embarrassed now to admit that I'm a sinner like everyone else. Right, Americans? We're not embarrassed about that. That's the gospel. Remember that, core, And we're all saved by grace through faith alone. I don't have to hide my sins anymore. And I don't have to cover up my Americanisms anymore. We can just listen and learn and grow and be embraced and welcomed. That's an example of what I'm talking about. A second thing that we need to learn, or third thing, I think I'm on number three. So one, we need to be more welcoming in the way in which we, we are willing to learn and to critique our own prejudices, not assuming that our way, our culture, our family is better. Secondly, and yet to be really welcoming, we must recognize and honor all cultures insofar as we make concessions for different cultures to be expressed. Now, I'm speaking into a movement that's become very, very strong in America that's also very, very naive. It's this idea, will this watch stay still? I cannot keep it still. Keep, stay. There you go. That's If you saw me wrestling with this watch, it's trying to tell me I'm through, and I am through. But, but, uh, but I think that be careful about this multiculturalism movement. Because what's underneath it sometimes is not what I'd call a true embrace of cultures. It's, it's an attempt to artificially create a multiculturalism by virtue of putting everybody in the same room and doing it all together. And the effect of that is to neuter culture versus to empower it. I've been learning that with my Bridges of Hope pastors. I've been learning that in Africa. That there's a sense in which we must understand that while we are all equal, we're not the same. And that and to make us the same is to actually diminish the power of that culture. It's why church planning, I think, is so important. In other words, despite the clear teachings that all Christians are equal in Christ, regardless of race, class, or culture, it is clear that we are not all equivalent or interchangeable. That's a better word, maybe. The Bible indicates that racial cultural distinctives are not superficial or unimportant. It is a mistake then to think that racial cultural differences are superficial and therefore to resist Then the church we need to drop our cultural distinctives in order to all just be one. That would be a grave mistake. Because the beauty of the Holy Spirit in the flesh of Christ that is in the flesh of a people, a very flesh we need in our lives in a way that iron sharpens iron and all of that would get lost. And therefore, I think as Presbyterians, we have a unique contribution to make in this area. Because see, we have a doctrine, and this is something that very people little, little know about Presbyterianism. But if the core of our doctrine is our polity, you know, most most denominations are named after their polity. An Anglican is after, you know, et cetera. And Presbyterian is a Presbyterial, or led or governed by a council of elders. And at the core of that is this idea that there is no earthly epicenter to our polity. That we are all organically, and what we call in our doctrine, it says multi-form congregations. That means congregations All who share the gospel, but in many different forms culturally. That's at the core of our belief system as Presbyterians. It's in our second book of of discipline that came out of the Scottish Reformation, that that kind of deep stuff. And what they're saying is that instead of there being a a cultural epicenter to our spirituality, whether it be Rome, whether it be Constantinople, whether it be Canterbury, whether it be Atlanta, Georgia whatever it is, that, that we don't recognize that. And that was at the core of the Reformation, because what the, Calvin said was that what had happened wrong in the church is that between the space of Christ and the church that, was, that is united by the Holy Spirit was inserted a Roman Latin culture. And this is something that my African brothers and sisters are definitely reacting to right now. Trying, and the, and the overreaction will be to develop what they call an African theology. The right reaction would be to embrace a Christian theology, and yet the more locally, culturally expressed, the better. To sing in and, and manners and, and ways, to do in manners and ways the gospel that reflects who they are culturally. And so that's the distinction we played with quite a bit last week. And we need to play with it here as we think about planning churches. The more local, the more culturally concentrated even, the better in some respects. Now, we live in a global world like New Haven. And the key here is the principle then is we want to look like the face of New Haven. This congregation sort of does. But it could still grow in that area. But that's the last point I'll make is don't be naive and take this multiculturalism so far as to diminish and neuter culture in order just to be in the same space. Because you just can't sing the same way at the same time. And there's a place in which there's just a degree in which you can't do it all. Well, with all that, let's, let's end...